dear listener, and welcome to the Metacast brought to you by Navic. Uh, in this Crypto Corner episode, we are talking about something important, something that might not you know, appeal or many people do not want to think about, um, but I think it's relevant. We're going to talk about um, uh, regulation and the law and how DAOs are seen by international regulation. We're going to talk about security tokens versus utility tokens, IP on the blockchain, and other um, interesting stuff and important stuff. So my name is Nico. I'm your host today. I'm also an investor at Bitcoft, and I have the pleasure of being joined by Omri Bouton, who is the blockchain, crypto, NFT, and Web3 lawyer at Sheridan's. Omri, you and I, we met a bit more than six months ago. We had a fantastic dinner together, uh, philosophizing about blockchain and other stuff. Uh, welcome to uh, to the podcast. Thanks so much, Nico. It's great to be here. Uh, and I love your podcast. So yeah, definitely very happy to join you on this episode. Cool. Well, um, I'll, um, I, I know that because we're talking about regulation and you're going to be talking about um, how, how you think or, or how you think about things and what thing, what people should be careful of. Maybe you want to first caveat yeah. a little bit in the beginning before we, we start talking about stuff. Of course, yeah. Uh, you know, as always, this is not uh, legal advice and it's not something that, you know, lawyers just say because like to be boring. It's just because uh, we are going to discuss uh, aspects that are quite um, difficult also for lawyers, you know, that practice in the space to really digest and apply. You know, a lot of these come uh, down to interpretation, especially because it's a new area with new regulation. There isn't much guidance out there yet. And also because, you know, um, really each case can vary quite a lot. So, you know, reasoning by way of analogy, in my opinion, is one of the best way to get it wrong in this space. And, uh, mm. you know, that's why it's quite, it's quite, um, challenging to try and help and create content you know it's important that people understand you know listener understand that uh, this should be a starting point you know on the kind of framework educational framework that uh, listeners and people who want to you know partake within the industry uh, can start can start from but it shouldn't represent you know what they're basing their uh, idea on also because or mm-hmm. you know their business model on also because <clears throat> a lot of what we're going to discuss if not mo- all of it is very much jurisdictional meaning you know I'm practicing in the UK uh, uh, most of what I'm going to say is going to relate to, you know, the state of affair now in the UK, which is likely to change, you know, within a few weeks uh, based on some some um, of the, you know, um, news that are coming out. So, yeah, just just take everything, you know, carefully. It's more of an educational conversation. Uh, please do not, you know, um, go off and start structuring a business model around what we're going to discuss. But what you can do is, you know, you can take this information and use it as a ramp to go and learn more about it. <clears throat> If um, people are listening to this and think, holy shit, that Omri knows what he's talking about, how can people find you? Uh, yeah, you can. Uh, I'm Omri Bouton, um, at Omri Bouton on Twitter. Uh, I never really used Twitter before, you know, uh, becoming part of this community. Um, yeah. But it's the greatest platform, I think, you know, for to, to bring mm-hmm. together the crypto and NFT community. And um, otherwise on LinkedIn, uh, same, or on Sheridan's, sheridan.co.uk, like that's the website uh, of the firm. I work at, which is a media and entertainment firm. We also cover uh, sports, um, esports. There is a very large, uh, you know, video game interactive entertainment practice. Uh, we deal with uh, VR, AR, music, film and TV, uh, theater, um, and then now, of course, crypto and NFT forms a big part. And it really all I do uh, day in day out. So, <clears throat> mm-hmm. and I've um, indirectly worked with Omri through deals that we did in the UK um, and those went pretty smoothly so I can attest that you know working with <laughs> Omri you. and Sheridan is, uh, <laughs> that means a is, lot thanks is, there you go cool alright let's dive in let's so um, first thing I'd like to have your thoughts on um, very broadly and mm-hmm. um, I'd just like to you know understand what is what is important to keep in mind um, around the concept of a DAO yeah. so a decentralized autonomous organization uh-huh. Um Currently, you know, everything is becoming a DAO. Yeah. And um, yeah, what is important to keep in mind here? What is a DAO from a legal, legal point of view? What are some examples uh, you can point to mm-hmm. where, say, where you can say this is done well or this is done wrong, uh, et cetera? Yeah. So, I mean, DAO stands for Decentralized Autonomous Organization. And what people refer to when they refer to a DAO, let's say the, the you know, uh, utopical ideal is uh, to be able to uh, group together and... Um, 
uh, through you know a membership, a token of membership, normally you know be it an NFT or some quantities of fungible currencies, and be able to exact you know pull funds together in order to uh, you know achieve a certain goal that is common to everyone. Like that's actually a definition that I heard from people on a podcast on the Joe Rogan podcast, and I found it fascinating. Mm. Is you know says that it's very power, it's a very powerful device because you can really gather. Uh, people together around the same goal, and this time it's not just a group on social network, but it also has an economy embedded into it with you know some uh, with capital to deploy. Um, you know, before we go into the legal uh, aspect, let's say I think um, those are very interesting, and you know they can really become um, collective efforts. Uh, and I think that a key part of the DAO revolves around, and a healthy way to structure a DAO revolves around contributions. So, you know, each member of the DAO theoretically should contribute. So it's not really a company where you buy shares and then you have the director managing everything. But I think that, you know, the, the to function properly, a DAO should have members that contribute to it. Because otherwise, all you're doing really, you're trying to set up a DAO to avoid all of the regulatory aspects you know, around anti-money laundering, all of the regulation uh, governing companies and issuance of shares and equity. So, you know, I, I think there is a place for DAOs, but I think that the focal point should be that that members contribute to it, and, you know, to the uh, to achieving the goal that the, the, the DAO, you know, has uh, is uh, founded on. Um, so on... So that that's one part, and second, I think it's something that I'd like to highlight. It's a podcast again, Joe Rogan, with um, the uh, producer, the director of the Social Dilemma, and you know, I think there are uh, arguments uh, for and against uh, social networks and all what's happening to big data. You know, I'm not necessarily just against it. I think that there is a lot of you know uh, useful use cases. Um, there are a lot of useful use cases for that, but. What's interesting is that, of course, the NFT space particularly, and also crypto, uh, includes, you know, a degree of anonymity. Like it's based on, uh, to a degree, it's based on anonymity. And if you look, for example, at the, you know, the the first case with Bitcoin, you know, it really is based on someone, someone or a group of people or an entity that is anonymous. And, you know, that's really what gave it uh, the narrative and some of its power, because then the regulator cannot really pinpoint, you know, liability or uh, onto anyone because no one knows who's behind it. So... Mm-hmm. I think anonymity is a core part of this industry, at least at this stage. And um, part of what we need to ask ourselves is, you know, there is machine learning that is already capable of passing Turing tests um, on social network, you know, and that is used and deployed in order to create uh, issues within different countries. You know, this is not speculation. This is all information that is available out there. And I think, the, you know, the, the collective tend to uh, underestimate how clever these machine learning can be. And when you look at DAOs, I think there is an inherent risk uh, coupled with, you know, this uh, accepted degree of anonymity within the industry so that, you know, we are following anonymous people on on Twitter that are being quoted in the news, that are being interviewed by anyone, and you don't really know who these people are, you know, and if, when you can gather a capital, for example, I think Constitution DAO gather like 40 million in what, a week maybe? You know, that's considerable capital. You can start doing some damage to companies out there, you know. And so mm-hmm. I think if knowing that human beings have been hacked from a, a point of view of, you know, influencing their decisions and looking at DAOs and how they operate normally, you know, through vote, uh, voting systems, which are largely, you know, unscrutinized and unregulated, then I think there is a risk there to consider. But I'm not a pessimist and I'm very positive about, you know, the, the role of the DAO, especially because there is a difference. Bet- you can structure DAOs at different levels, right? So you can have a, a DAO effectively should include, you know, people are trying to include the distribution of capital or revenue that the DAO, you know, generates. That's, you know, the more uh, kind of red flag, you know, circumstance from a legal perspective, because of course it, mm-hmm. the membership start to look a lot more like a form of security whereby mm-hmm. you accrue passively accrue, you know, uh, value, money, or money's worth. And then there is another one. And then the second aspect of it, which is governance, which can also be a red flag and can also, you know, trigger security concerns. But more generally, you can structure governance over perhaps certain aspects that are not the equivalent of the company itself or the direction of the company, but rather, for example, aspects of a platform or of a game, perhaps, you know, related more to the narrative and the content. So I think that, you know, when we speak about DAO, it's also important to understand, first of all, what aspect that is related to? Is it about distribution, uh, you know, distributing uh, revenue to the members? And second, is it, uh, and you know, and is it about governance? And if we're talking about governance, then at what level does the governance come in, you know? And similarly, on the distribution of um, of revenue, 
what is the justification behind the distribution of revenue? Is it simply holding the membership pass and being part of a DAO, or is it based on a contribution? Because then if you look at the contribution, then it starts looking a little bit more like a service. So it's like payment in return of a service that you provide to the collective, which I'm not saying is risk-free, but if you're looking at it in the form of a spectrum, receiving something without doing anything for it looks a lot like a security. Receiving a payment for a service rendered start to look a little bit more like a service provision. Again, with that said, you know, it's not legal advice. And that's why I'm saying we're discussing aspects, you know, if you want in the abstract. And it's very important that people don't just say, okay, so all I need to do is provide a service and we're good. <laughs> no, it's it's more <laughs> complex than that. So please, you know, don't go heads on into that. But this is, you know, when you look at DAO and the kind of risk, this is, I think, it's a framework to start considering. So you have, you know, what is the goal behind the DAO? Uh, what are the members, uh, you know, uh, required to do? Uh, and what are, um, you know, the reward that can come from that? And what are the, at what level is the governance uh, operating at? You know, is it like determining how the entire DAO operates and all of the decision? Again, it can be risky. <clears throat> is it only a minor aspect and not, let's say, the governance of the collective itself? You know, less of a risk, but still something to consider, definitely. So... And when you say risk, um, mm -hmm. do you mean that the government would consider the DAO not a DAO, but just a company? Is is that then the risk that you're running uh, when setting something like that up? Well, a that, so this is the difficulty, right? Because when you're looking at companies and also some type of partnership, you can have a limited liability on top of it, meaning that, mm. you know, the company itself and the limited partnership becomes, you know, has a separate legal personality, meaning that mm -hmm. it's almost as if it were, you know, it is a person, it's, it's called a legal person. And that's why company mm -hmm. can enter into agreement with with others, you know, and, and commit to, you know, services or payments or enter into obligations. The problem is that if a DAO is, you know, only a DAO in, uh, in understanding, but has no uh, formal structure behind it, then <clears throat> potentially what you're having is some form of unlimited partnership, meaning that you don't have a separate personal, a, a separate personality that, you know, kind of places a separation between what the entity is doing and the members. It's just, you know, it's a free flow. So all of the member would be liable to a, to an uncapped extent, Anything. you know, both in terms of, you know, say if there is a contractual breach, but also like in terms of uh, regulation, you know, and uh, I think when I'm talking about risk, really what I'm saying is the risk of falling under um, financial services regulation, anti-money laundering regulation and breaching uh, any such regulation by virtue of not, you know, operating within the regulated space in accordance with with the framework that is set by the by the government, you know, and by the legislator. Mm. Yeah. And so... Am I as a, so I'm part of a bunch of DAOs, some mm -hmm. of them of which I just, you know, tangentially got some tokens for some reason, or maybe I, I liked it, so I, I bought a handful. Yeah. Um, is, is, am I potentially at risk in an extreme case of being seen as liable mm -hmm. for things that, that get done by that uh, group of people? So these are the difficult questions that, you know, I should refrain answering on a podcast because, of course, there are a lot of factors that goes into it. For example, you know, where are you residing? What are the rules that govern, mm -hmm. you know, but... Ultimately, and you know, this is more of an opinion. It, it, it's more like a, how I think some regulator would go about it. It's more about who issues and who benefits from the issuance okay. of the of the membership uh, tokens, let's say, whether NFT or not. Uh, you purchasing it could be seen maybe a, a, an innocent party. And then it depends, you know, if you become part of a member and you start receiving revenue and you become more involved in the DAO, then maybe there might be an extent of liability uh, on you as well. But, um, mm. you know... So I should uh, find a boat and go live in international waters. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like the pirate radio is, uh, <laughs> yeah. in the 80s okay. and 90s. It's it's a difficult framework. And I think, you know, that's part of the challenge that comes with decentralization is uh, it's very difficult to apply normal rules to some of these scenarios because there is a jurisdictional element that is hard to enforce. Uh, and, you know, DeFi represents a massive problem, for example, mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. from the point of view of the regulator, because it's really hard to understand how you regulate it. And regulation mm -hmm. should exist to protect consumers, right? And I think that that's a positive. But then the problem is that how do you make sure that you don't go overboard and, you know, limit, stifle innovation by requiring project to, you know, too much, by, by requiring too much, you know, yeah, an yeah, oversight. Yeah. And the problem that we have, I think, here in the UK at least, is that there is a risk at least for projects that are involved in cryptographic asset to fall, especially NFTs, let's say because... To, to fall within the requirements of the um, 
you know, a new anti-money, dedicated anti-money laundering framework. And that requires registration with the, um, with the regulator, with the Financial Conduct mm-hmm. Authority. Now, the, the regulator, the registration itself is not a license. So normally a license, you know, the regulator has to authorize you and by providing you a license. So it, basically the activity is illegal unless you get an authorization by the regulator for which there is an application process. This registration process should be more of a, you know, disclosure, but in reality, it is quite demanding. And, you know, again, it's, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. Uh, Before moving to the UK a year ago, I worked in Gibraltar where the, um, you know, where companies and, you know, entities basically that uh, provide services uh, via the blockchain, be it, you know, transfer of value belonging to others or uh, custodianship services are regulated and require a license. I don't think that was a bad framework. There was certainty. It was expensive. It wasn't for everyone. But, you know, large exchanges could come and go through the entire process and at the end of it, get a license. Now, the license wouldn't necessarily entitle you to operate everywhere in the world uh, because it's not a harmonized framework, meaning that, you know, you can't passport the blockchain, li- like this blockchain, like DLT license, uh, how it's called <clears throat> elsewhere, because it's not recognized, uh, at least at this stage. But at least, you know, if you have, first of all, the process itself should take you from a point of, you know, should, at the end of this process, you should be a serious company that understands how regulation work, that has mechanism in place to protect consumer and, you know, be as compliant as possible. So the process, you know, the process to apply uh, for a, an authorization is useful also as a learning curve, because as part of that application, you would need to implement internal policy. You would need to appoint uh, a competent personnel and so on and so forth. So I, do, I definitely do think that there is space for that. The problem comes in the form of Let's say you're a creative and you want to leverage some of the benefit that uh, blockchain technology provide uh, provides, you know, and and then suddenly you're required to comply with, uh, um, you know, a list of obligations that are more. Uh, tailored to, you know, financial services provider or financial Mm -hmm. technology provider. And I think that's the problem. It's almost like saying, well, I'm going to regulate every piece of paper like a security because potentially there could be, you know, that could be a share. And Mm -hmm. I think, I'm not saying this is the case right now, but I think that that's the challenge. It's how do you distinguish one from the other, especially when the pace is innovation is so quick, you know? And, And I mean, the I'm not, of course, a developer. And you can see that also, for example, within the very definition of what is a fungible token and what is a non-fungible token, right? Because we give that for granted, but we take that for granted. But so we say, okay, here, like on Ethereum, ERC-20, the, you know, it's a standard that is used for fungible currency. Uh, 721 is non-fungible. And 1155, what is it? It's a hybrid. You know, you can have different classes and different volume for each class. So at what, at what point in volume do you start deeming ERC-1155 as fungible? Or, you know, do we just deem them as non-fungible because they're capable of having, you know, potentially of operating as a, as a, as a non-fungible uh, cryptographic asset? So, you know, all of these questions, it's very hard to regulate the space. And I think, you know, the way that Gibraltar went about it, they were regulating the service provider rather than trying to regulate the technology. And I think that there is some... Um, benefit to that in that you don't have to get the definition of the technology right. You say, you know, you, you just focus on, well, it's recorded by way of, of, of distributed ledger technology and what are the services that you provide. But again, you know, it's very, it's still underdeveloped. I think that there is a bit of misunderstanding on the part of, some, of, of you know, the industry, of the industry when, because you hear often, you know, oh, there is no regulation. No, no, there are regulation in place. The problem is that there is lack of guidance and that some of the regulation, you know, might struggle to capture or regulate appropriately new development within the space. Hmm. That's interesting. If I, um, let's say I'm, I'm building a game and I, yeah. you know, one part of that game will be a DAO. Um, <clears throat> I've heard that many, well, heard, I've, I've seen that many blockchain games tend to go towards uh, like islands in the Caribbean um, to set up the DAO and, and where the legal entity exists. Um, is that because they're just um, more flexible there? And um, it, it, is, is it that, be, yeah. you think, how this will continue? Yeah, it could be. But, you know, there's always a risk because... Some regulations are limited to the place of incorporation of the company or the place where, you know, the person that creates the project is resident in. Other form of regulation have extraterritorial effect in that if you're based elsewhere, but you're providing services into a jurisdiction, then you become subject to the regulation of that jurisdiction as well. You know, 
uh, there might be challenges on the part of the government to enforce anything if you know you have no presence here, but that doesn't mean that you are not infringing. So, uh, you know, and that's especially true when it comes to financial services, like offering securities within a territory normally triggers uh, that territory, the, the you know regulatory um, obligation from that territory, and that also applies to gambling because, like you know, the blockchain uh, regulation that I mentioned before, you know, it's gambling is a sensitive topic, and you know, each jurisdiction is going about it differently based on you know. What, how they deem it, and based on you know the sensitivity of the of 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 the collective of the community, uh, so it's not harmonized. Meaning that you know, some for gambling, for example, some jurisdiction do not regulate do not regulate it. Some jurisdiction make it illegal, and some jurisdiction regulate it, requiring you to obtain a license if you know your activity falls within within the regulation. So, uh, going back to the offshore entity. Uh, some of the structures, and you can see that, for example, I think with ApeCoin, I think that there are Cayman, some of these structures would have a foundation for the issuance of the token. The goal of the foundation being that of promoting the token, and then they can commission, you know, to studios of creative around the world work for the foundation. So that places some separation there. But again, you really need to look at the details of how that is done, because when it comes to regulation, it doesn't really matter what's in your terms and what's in the agreement. What matters is what's going on in reality, you know, it's a question of substance. So, uh, mm. you know, the way that you, you know, it, it's not, and you don't, you know, you don't really joke when it comes to financial services and uh, and gambling as well, uh, because those are sensitive areas of regulation. A regulator can be very, you know, look at the, uh, you know, SEC and the FCA, they can be very um, severe with, uh, with uh, the kind of liability. Yeah. That makes sense. And so if I understand you correctly, um, and this is what I've, I've seen quite quite a few times with companies is that they set up a, um, so they want to build a game mm -hmm. which has a treasury. Um, and so they set up a DAO that, um, of which uh, a certain percentage of the tokens, right? So you have the typical tokenomics yeah, distribution. Yeah, you have like an insider reserve part of it being for the treasury. Yeah, exactly. And so 20% is kept for the, the company. So the, the initial company, the entity that mm -hmm. actually like, builds uh, the game. Yeah. And then there is a service agreement between the two where yes. the DAO actually pays on a yearly basis, um, uh, like a, a small fee, I guess, right? Because... Um, the company actually also owns X percent of the tokens, which is, you know, their long-term incentives to make this this work. Yeah, I mean that that really boils down to how you structure the consideration, yeah. meaning you know the payment from from the entity, from the foundation, let's say, or like this, you know, the let's say the the group that is issuing the token to the company mm -hmm. that is creating the content. Um, on commission. So mm -hmm. that really depends. And, you know, you see structure of all kind. What I would say is that, you know, having viewed a few, um, you know, term sheet and uh, deal, you know, agreements between VCs and projects, um, I think you need to be very careful in entering even in term sheets and, and um, agreements with an entity in a place where, you know, the issuance of token is regulated or forbidden just because you want to make sure that you don't create obligations for the companies that you cannot meet because you would be breaching regulation, but then you would be breaching the contract that you've entered into. So, you know, the VC, you're like, you're in, in a sandwich where you don't want to be, you know, so, um, um, and I think that, I'm not saying, I'm not trying to be catastrophic. I think all of what we are discussing can be done. It's just, all I'm saying is that, you know, you if you are, you know, the founder of a project, you should give this proper thought, you know, like there is investment right now. The incentive is considerable because if you have a good project, you know, you're going to monetize it. So I think, you know, be formal about it and, you know, be as formal as possible. Uh, there is inherently a, a degree of risk in operating in this industry. You know, that's just part of it. Uh, and I think everyone, you know, that operates within this has a, a bit of a higher risk appetite than the norm. And that goes for yourself, for me, for anyone that is, you know, a DGEN. So um, I think... I'm not trying to dissuade people from doing that. I'm just saying, you know, just don't be dismissive. It's uh, and, and you know, in, Ita in Italy we say "patti chiare amicizia lunga," which means like if the if everything is clear at the outset, the friendship is going to last a long time. So try mm. to really understand what are the the issues that can come from, especially for example, a VC investment into into a target. And uh, from both ends, and then try to mitigate as much risk as possible so that you don't have, you know, bad relationship later on in life, but you can just focus on, you know, creating this interoperable uh, uh, space together between the VC and the companies that the VC is, um, is uh, investing in. And I think, you know, just to give a couple of pointers so that people can uh, try, so that I can, you know, effectively 
be clear on what I'm referring to. You should, for example, when you're investing in, in when a VC comes around, you know, normally there is a pro rata location out of, a, of a, some form of um, um, reserve, you know, inside the reserve. Now, the trigger for that reserve, you need to be careful on how you craft it because you don't, if, if say, you know, a lot of time you see very wide wording saying, well, whenever tokens are created, issued, distributed, allocated, that means basically anything you do with the token would trigger that clause and they need to create an insider reserve, right? And I think that's a problem because what happens if, say, the company issues 100 tokens, 40%, say, let's look at 38, let's look at ApeCoin, is distributed amongst the insider because that's, you know, an event that triggers the the, the distribution to all shareholders. Okay, Um the rest of the 60, the company should be able, should be in a position to decide how much to sell, maybe via an exchange, how much to inject within the economy of a game, you know, for, for it to be sustainable. And let's say you later on, and you keep some of it. If the company decides then to allocate more, you know, of that token in the game, that should not trigger another allocation to the insider because that bundle of tokens has already been subject to the first allocation, you know? And I think... I don't think that would be a point of con a contentious point between the VCs and you know the investors and and the titles mm -hmm. because it's in everyone's interest that the economy of the game is sustainable because if the economy is unsustainable no one is going to play your game so um I think that that's yeah that's that's why I wanted to mention this one of the great potential that I believe this concept of web3 has is that it is just a very low barrier of you know um being able to do interesting things and collaborating with people without having, you know, to go through all of the hassle of, of setting up a legal entity and, yeah. you know, um, you know, hiring people like yourself. No offense, Omri, but uh, you're expensive, <laughs> you know. Not everyone wants to. I'm actually quite good in terms of you. price. <laughs> I'm quite good. <laughs> there you go. There you go. We're, we're very much shilling uh, Omri and Sheridan's here. Um, <laughs> so my, my question is, so let's say um, mm -hmm. a few months ago, actually a long while ago, I've made the promise where I said that I was thinking about launching metacost nfts i'm actually still intend to do that people yeah. it's just um i'm 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 lazy also you know i get concerned when i am on calls like this but so my question is if i you know as an individual as a group or like with a group of friends want to set up a dao and and do an experiment with with fun stuff where we allocate maybe you know um you know just a bit of money where we can play around and and, and do some random stuff how would you how do you think that will well how should we approach it how should we think about it do we need to to take it, it so serious as you yeah, just described I, I would i mean it, it depends again you know it goes back to the beginning of of uh, this uh, part that we you know that we're discussing now it it depends like is there any sort of a flow you know are there funds flowing back to the members are there yeah. so allocation being made what is the governance relating to and you know is there a need for a DAO? Because a lot of these can be implemented also without it. You know, the reality of fact, you say that um, a lot of these mechanisms are great because they allow uh, people to collaborate and partner without all of the formalities that normally would apply, which, you know, they do apply, but you can disregard. You can, I think you can gain access to capital without going through this, but you you might, you know, incur in, like in uh, you know, in you might breach regulation in doing so. Maybe you just don't, mm -hmm. don't appreciate it at first. But then the question is, do you need a DAO? And I think that doesn't only apply to a DAO, that applies a bit for everything, like staking. Not A lot of times staking is used also, you know, for multiple, it, like to, to refer to most, multiple use cases. Because on a proof of stake, staking allows, you know, a, a, a particular entity to become a validator within the ecosystem, right? Whereas staking used on Ethereum, whilst it's proof of work, unless the smart contract operates in some curious way where there is some form of staking, I'm not sure if you can implement that within, you know, within the smart contract itself. To be honest, I'm not as technical at that level. But most often, it's just a reward staking, meaning maybe it has an anti-deflationary, you know, effect by, you know, incentivizing people and locking away certain amounts. But you're not really serving any purpose to the network, and that has, you know, mm -hmm. so one term can already have different levels of risk, which is why mm -hmm. it's very important to go down to the root of what are you referring to when you refer to staking? What are you referring to when you're referring to a DAO? You know, and I think the project are also feel that they have in order to compete within this industry, they have to provide outstanding value to the collectors in the form of financial gains. And, you know, my question is, okay, for some community, that's great. And, you know, no one complains receiving money, myself included. But the question is, if you are building a community around, say, a common interest or a, or a particular goal, 
do you really need to buy your community? Because you're going to incentivize a lot of people, you know, that are only there to, to get the tokens that you're allocating, to get the, you know, the, you incentivize a type of collector that is not really a collector and doesn't really resonate with the goal that you have in mind, but rather someone that is just there for the money. And I'm not saying that it's something bad on the part of a collector. If there is free money, why not? Or like free money up until the tax point, because that's also another part. But you know what I mean? Like if you have a flow of value from a project, then that's great. But I don't think that it's necessary. If you have a great product, you know, I've played World of Worker for 10 years. And I've been a buy like, you know, uh, skins and cosmetic in other games. And I don't get anything back, which I think is something that the blockchain does address. And I couldn't wait for a technology like this to come around because I think that as gamers, you invest a lot of time and effort and money to, you know, accrue value within a game, but then it's locked within the ecosystem. And that's a problem that I think the blockchain can solve. But I think that's the dif- that's different, you know, than saying, okay, yeah, I'm releasing a project. Then if you're, you're you know, I'm going to keep dropping token onto you and uh, you can sell them on secondary market. You can do it. I'm not saying don't do it, but I'm saying be careful because if you're only basing your product on that, then what's your end? What's what's your product? Is it just really like some form of financial incentive product masked with a UX of like cute characters? Because that could be the case, you know. And mm-hmm. uh, and again, just be clear on what is that you want and what community you want to end up with and how sustainable you want your product to be. So I think mm-hmm. those are um, some pointers. I probably I, um, sound like a hater, by the way. I actually love this space. I'm full on DGen. I buy any NFT you can think of. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's right. You uh, you you like to lose money on the internet, so um, that's um, yeah. I'm collecting. That's, that's good. Good to know. <laughs> um, one thing that I see and that I actually like seeing is so. I see quite a lot of you know startup projects coming to me. Um, we now broadly distinguish between uh, two token or a multi-token model and a one-token model, right? Mm. So one-token model is um, so that that token is both utility inside the game, as well as the token that investors would hold or that would you know yeah. in some shape, way, or form accrue value over time. Mm-hmm. Um, a multi-token model is there's one token which we usually call the governance token, although it doesn't necessarily have to give governance. Mm-hmm. That attempts to capture the value, and that is the token that is usually also um, uncapped. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry, capped. So there's a limited supply. And um, and then, so there's so there's the governance token on one hand, and then there's utility token, or, or like one or multiple utility tokens within the game that are then um, usually uncapped and are used um, to you know, manage liquidity. Like if, if no new it's people the arrive, of the game, you no? can... You mean... Sorry? You yeah, mean exactly, the economy exactly. of the game, and yeah. So, they give more flexibility, and so my, my question is: um, What is for you the distinction between a utility and a, or what is a security token and what is not? I guess okay for so, you, or what is seen yeah. as a security and what is not? The good thing uh, is that we actually have a definition provided by the regulator on what you know what's the difference. And a security token is a token that falls that has characteristics that are inherent to financial instrument. So something that looks like a unity in a collective investment scheme, something that uh, you know uh, operates like a security. Uh, sorry, like a share in a company. You know, you have a list of items of instrument that uh, are deemed as securities. And so, and, you know, a security token would be a cryptographic asset that behaves like one of those. So that meets the tests that are applied to understand whether an instrument falls within one of these categories. Um, you also have e-money tokens, which, um, you know, is another, you know, electronic money are regulated. Uh, stable coins tend to be more relevant to that, um, although not all stable coins are e-money. Um, and then you have utility tokens, which are you know tokens that don't fall within the definition of a security token or or, or a, an e-money token, which doesn't mean that the utility token is not regulated. <clears throat> you could fall within uh, you know anti-money laundering, for example, and within um, uh, financial promotion. Although that has not yet been uh, regulated, there are you know consultation paper out that suggests that um, non-fungible token will be excluded, at least here in the UK, whereas fungible token will be included. So there are rules governing you know the financial promotion uh, of of um, of instrument and and uh, you know cryptographic asset will likely be subject to these. Um, security token and e-money token are already subject to financial promotion rules as security or as e-money. Uh, so it's more for the utility uh, token part. Um, what is, I wanted to say something. Uh, I forgot about it now. There was an interesting point. But yeah, in, in general, you know, in terms of the, the multi-token dynamic, I think that really comes down to tokenomics, which I don't really think, I see it, I deal with it as part of my of my role, but, you know, there are people that specialize in that and products that are specialized, 
you know, designed to understand if a, an economy is sustainable or not. So, and I think those are important because even in traditional video games, the economy of the game really does affect the uh, enjoyability of the game itself. Uh, and so, you know, when you're getting into blockchain product, that's even more important because there is direct correlation to the value of the assets you hold with the how how efficient and sustainable the economy um, is within the game. But also, you know, we're talking about now having a Web2 approach to Web3 technologies. But also, if you look at Loot, for example, and Loot versus, you know, I'm, I know that you're familiar with uh, David and uh, what is the Crypt yeah, yeah, yeah. and all of that. I think that's very interesting as well. You know, you can have, you can... You can have a different structure in that you can have people that design assets for a game and um, and then you can have people that design experiences to incorporate those assets. I think that's interesting. Like, And we're starting to talk about interoperability, uh, you know, and I think that what's very interesting is that I see uh, at least two types of interoperability that are building up. Um, one comes from VC at a VC level. If you look at perhaps also Beatcraft and Imoka, you know, you have a lot of investment in a lot of companies and then it's easier mm. for that to be a network to then communicate with each other. And I think that the first stage for that would be regulatory interoperability, which is why I thought very, I thought it was very interesting for you, Galab, to ask for KYC. You know, have you seen that? No. It was handled, I think, it wasn't handled great on the communication side because the community, you know, it was to be expected, you know. If you come in the middle of the market and you request people for proof of, of proof, you know, for IDs and proof of residence and all of that, people are not going to react well. And, you know, I think it, the tweet was something along the could line you, Could of, you elaborate on exactly what they were asking? Yeah. Uh, so... Effectively, they were running due diligence on on people that were interested in the project. So to to enter, you know, into the and we don't know yet what the project is, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. So it's you know they were asking for a proof of proof of identities. So that means mm -hmm. an ID or you know driving license yes. and a proof of address, which is for example what most businesses have to do anyway. But in a space mm -hmm. where you know there is none of that, mm -hmm. then suddenly putting that type of barrier where there are a lot of people that are anonymous and don't want to to, you know, uh, dox themselves, then it's it's a, it's a gamble. And I think that Yugalab is probably one of the only company that could have pulled that off, uh, you know, and sustained the backlash. Because, you know, mm -hmm. how many times clients come and they have great ideas, and then all of these kind of regulatory burden force them to take more time and understand how to structure it, uh, when they could really implement, you know, KYC and the diligence measure. But that would mean that as they approach market, they would just, you know, tank because right now the industry doesn't accept that yet. So the fact that Yugalab did it first, I think, was important for the space because then they can start uh, educating the market as to potentially, you know, what's going to come. Like, uh, you know, I'm a lawyer and this is the regulation. Um, good or bad for the space, I'm all for innovation. So, but, but you also have a commercial reality, you know, and a legal reality that, that applies mm -hmm. to you if you're a service provider. So I understand why you could feel uh, very much against that. Unfortunately, you know, it's, um, it's something that regulations seem to be going toward that, that, you know, uh, end. Uh, so, and, um, but that, that's how uh, what happened. And I think right after that happened, then they announced that they purchased Punks and Mibit. <laughs> so it was almost like, you know, don't get too angry here. So <laughs> you yeah, have IP over look, your Punk. <laughs> so yeah. yeah. That's interesting. Mm. Um, yeah. I'm, um, I'm, I consider myself a libertarian where yeah. I think giving people freedom and allowing for easy value exchange mm -hmm on the internet mm -hmm. is actually a good thing. I think, you know, automated market makers, platforms like Uniswap, uh, SushiSwap, et cetera, mm -hmm. are actually great, amazing inventions. Um, you know, where, you know, like, I, I believe in a tokenized future where, you know- Me too, that's why I'm in Almost everything will be tokenized. Um, <laughs> is that for you, from your legal point of view, realistic to, like, I, I see a world where in, in five years time, yeah. um, all company shares are actually, um, you know, tokenized? tokens. Yeah, yeah, but I think, you know, the the use cases that we're discussing are quite limited because in reality, you know, the distributed ledger and the blockchain can be used for for many, many applications. And there is, of mm -hmm. course, like, you know, even just from, from the authentication standpoint, it, it'd be great for a number of certificates. So, yeah, I do, I mm -hmm. do think that, that that would be the case. And, you know, not every 
a distributed ledger or not any block not every blockchain needs to be public so you know blockchains are already used uh, within uh, the banking system and you know within financial services provider as, as part of their internal uh, mechanism you know but mm-hmm. they're just not public unlike for example bitcoin and ethereum where you can go and see what happens on on the ledger so you can really design one however you want i think if you want to be you know if you look at if you want to look at the dystopic future then i think you look at um all form of fiat money being on the blockchain as stablecoin and being trackable to the point where you know you basically everything you do with your money is subject to someone review or you know potentially mm-hmm. and i think that's mm-hmm. terrifying because i think that there is very you know the reason data on your financial dealings like so you know financial data on, on, on people is so sensitive you know i th- i don't think people appreciate how sensitive that is um, mm. If I know what you spend on, I know you better than if I speak with you, because you can put on a facade when you speak, but you know when you yeah. what, what you spend on like really defines a large part of, of of your person, and I think that that information is very sensitive. So, are you judging me for my Barbie collection, Omri? <sighs> well, yeah, <laughs> I expected you to be a can collector like myself, but <laughs> no, but it's um. But you know, it's I think I think it's and not public just for other people to view, but more for government. Like think mm-hmm. about all of the backlash there there has been, you know, in respect of uh, now with all of the Ukraine Russia conflict. I'm not saying one is right, one is wrong, but I'm saying you know there has been a lot of backlash because people were unable to access their funds, some of their mm-hmm. funds, and to put pressure on the government in Russia. <laughs> Imagine if everything is on a, is a, you know on a blockchain that is centralized because you can have decentralized. Uh, Chains, but you can also have centralized one or with the centralized point of access. So I think you know it's a, that's the dystopic future. And in my opinion, and you know, you know, many of your listeners and yourself might hate me for saying that, but I think that part of that dystopic future also includes a, a very big leap in virtual reality, because I think that that, and especially if coupled with pollution and carbon credit, carbon credit being on chain, you know, tied to your identity, becomes very dystopic because. If you look at how carbon credits are are now, which is, I think it's arbitrary most, I mean, I'm not an an environment lawyer, but I think that they're, you know, effectively you're trying to offset pollution that you're generating by purchasing carbon credits, which are generated by carbon credit farms. So like, they, you know, you plant trees and and fuel it. Mm -hmm. But so some, some companies are given quotas, meaning that you have a certain amount of allowance. And then if you go above that, you need to go on the market and purchase more to offset your, Mm -hmm. your, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, carbon footprint. Now, the problem with that is imagine if in the future, because, you know, the environment, you know, is not getting any better. Imagine if in the future, the carbon credit allowance would be applied to us. So that basically you have a certain amount of carbon allowance that you spend by taking flights, by driving a car, by, you know, and just in just leaving. And then you track that. And if you exhaust it, then you need to purchase it. You need to purchase additional carbon credit. I think there then then society will be de-incentivized or will simply not be able to afford carbon credits required to, for example, travel the world and see things in real life. But then maybe there won't be a need because, again, you're going to have, like, you know, the virtual representation, perhaps even, you know, with, with certain perks that would stimulate our brain more. And so, you know, I think it would, it would become very much of an anchor, right? Uh, whereas the utopia, or at least, like, the, the future I'm very hopeful about, and I, again... I might sound very negative. I'm actually super excited about all of this technological advancement. Uh, you know, I, I absolutely love it. You know, I, I've been passionate about it for years. But the future that I'm looking at is an augmented reality-based future. And, uh, you know, and uh, with blockchain, in order to be able to trade augmented assets, you know, and, and have virtual assets that effectively feel real and are as unique as real item. Because then what, what happened is it can have also, you know, talking about environment, but it's just one example, it can have a very positive effect because then suddenly you can uh, mass reduce, you know, the amount of product that you create and you can just have those products produced digitally and then transfer to you. And you can, for example, in case of fashion, you can wear them, you know, if they look real, if they feel real, if we're able to stimulate our brain to a sufficient degree so that, you know, the argumentation doesn't only, is not limited only to the visual element, but also to the other senses, then I think that becomes very positive for our society. Also because it potentially can be a technology that 
enhances the way we communicate between each other and incentivizes us to communicate with each other in real life. And at the same time, you know, if you look at augmented reality and you go, let's say, full dive, then you can still have virtual reality, which is super. It can have really, really cool applications, especially around the interactive entertainment space. But I think, yeah, that's the kind of future that I'm hopeful uh, for and that I'm trying to push as much as possible from my end. Fascinating. And I feel like uh, every time you and I talk, we tend to end up somewhere philosophical. Yeah, um, completely. But I love it. <laughs> but I love it. Started from the house, <laughs> end of the world. Yeah. Good. Um, so, although I'd love to, to dig deeper into this, because I, I also have my thoughts around, you know, how I see an ideal future tokenized mm -hmm. and how it makes sense. Um, let's let's try keep on, on topic yes. uh, for the podcast. Uh, next thing I'd like to have your thoughts on is, is IP on the blockchain. Yeah. Um, it is something that a lot of big brands are very concerned about. Um, yeah. Could you tell me what how, how you're thinking around that? Why it is important, et cetera? Yeah. So um, I think if you look at intellectual property, let's start like, I think like just setting the framework and then we go on to the risk. So mm -hmm. intellectual properties are a negative, right? It means that if you have an intellectual property, if you, if you own a certain piece of intellectual property, then you have the right to stop others from doing something with that property that is deemed to belong mm. to you. So that's what's a negative right. So you have the ability to exercise it, to stop someone else from doing something. Mm -hmm. Now, the problem with uh, IP and uh, blockchain, but even more, because you know when you look at, for example, NFTs, let's say, normally because of data limitation on chain, it's not desirable to store the piece of content that is, you know, the forms part of the of the um, uh, of the NFT on chain, but you rather store it on separate databases, such as, for example, and they can be, you know, distributed. So meaning that they can be very secure from an information standpoint. So if you look at IPFS, for example, so you know, if you look, for example, at at the phone, like let's say this was an NFT, then you have the cryptographic asset that is recorded on the blockchain. And then you have, you know, the piece of content that is recorded on a separate database and, you know, and, and the cryptographic assets as metadata capable of pointing toward this piece of content. Now, as mentioned, the piece of content tends to be on, descent, on you know, distributed databases as well, meaning that mm -hmm. it's not centralized, meaning that no, you can't really get on the database and delete the information. No one has that control because if it's distributed, then, you know, there is not one point of failure, uh, but there, there are many and multiple. Mm -hmm. If there is a piece of uh, content which is stored on one of these distributed databases, then you cannot take it down. Now, you know that intellectual property is normally dealt with by way of license, meaning that we have a negative right, correct? So I can stop you from using my piece of intellectual property. So how do I monetize that? I monetize that by giving you permission to use my piece of intellectual property subject to certain rules that I lay out because I am in full control. I can tell you, you can only use it on Fridays in this particular point. So you can, you know, place limits in terms of uh, geographical location, terms of use, like you can use it on a website, but not, for example, for merchandising, right? So you can decide how can the piece of intellectual property that belongs to you will be used by the person that you're authorizing, right? And in exchange for that, the person that you're authorizing will pay you normally an amount or a share of the revenue that is generated by their use, right? So that's a license, effectively. You mm -hmm. authorize someone to do something with your property. Normally, licenses are provided, I mean, that's that should be the case, you know, for a period of time, for a certain, which is called the term, right? It's the term of the agreement. So I authorize you to use this particular piece of property for, say, two years, okay? Now, the problem is, if you're, if I am a brand and I give you a license over my intellectual property and your use involves storing any piece of intellectual property that belongs to me on IPFS or Earwave, you can't take it down. So what happens when mm. the license expires? You can't take down the metadata. Yeah, okay, maybe you can delist it from OpenSea and centralized marketplaces, but there are decentralized marketplaces as well, and the data is going to be there. So this adds one layer of complexity when it comes to intellectual property. And I think, you know, if you look at intellectual property, you know, if you try to create, and I'm referring mostly to copyright when I speak about IP, especially in and trademarks as well in relation to, you know, to, to NFTs. If you take a step back and you look at it, effectively the strategy with intellectual property is secure your right, you know, some right are registered, meaning you need to register like trademark and patents with the intellectual property office. Some are unregistered in some jurisdiction, like, for example, copyright, you know, design rights, there are registered and registered, but without, without losing ourselves in that, basically, you secure your intellectual property right so that you can prove that you own it, right? 
then you commercialize it by by even using it yourself or giving other the permission to use it. And then you make sure that you, you protect your rights by enforcing it. So by stopping others that are not authorized from using it. That's the problem. Enforcement, the third component, is a problem at scale. Like, that's the problem with intellectual property. If you look at the beginning of the century, massive problem with the music industry. Why? Because you can copy and paste digital information infinitely, correct, on traditional databases. Mm-hmm. Meaning, you know, it's one. It's great when, when the person that is not authorized is one or two or maybe 10, but go and sue two million people. You know, it's not, it's not feasible. So the internet has always presented an inherent problem for an intellectual property standpoint because of scale. Now, add to scale fuel by, in the sense that you increase the scale by including also immutability of information and inherent, distribu- inherent you know, distribution and mm-hmm. self-custodianship of property. So it's not like you can go to someone's wallet and take it, mm-hmm. you know, <clears throat> unless, of course, the smart contract is programmed that way, which is not the case most often. So... You know, this is a problem, and um, and that's that leads us to, to two points. A, brands, especially large brands, but any brand really, should be very careful in understanding and not being dismissive in understanding how their content is used. If you are the person that is seeking the license from someone, make sure that the term is until the expiry of the right, because you won't be able to take it down. So you need to be careful because otherwise what happens is the moment you send the agreement and upload the piece of content on a distributed database, you're potentially already infringing because you know that you you won't be able to take it down. So be careful Mm. around how you phrase that. But also what it showcases, I think it's an important distinction on how, on the role of intellectual property rights within Web3. I think, you know, Web3, sorry, IP, as we said, is a negative right. And the strategy around IP has been you know, that of enforcing against unauthorized users and commercialized authorized users. That is an economy based on deterrence. Effectively, if you don't get my authorization, I'm going to sue you. That's a deterrent. And I don't mm-hmm. think they work well as, as well as incentives. Even as human beings, I think we tend to operate better in a framework of incentives than deterrence. So if you look at, for example, let's say Web2, right? Music problem, the, the, the music industry and the problem with that. Mm-hmm. When did piracy really stop or at least decrease to a large degree? When services such as Spotify, iTunes, and mm-hmm. I'm not saying that that's great for the artist. What I'm saying is it did remove a large part of piracy because you're not justified to, pir- to, to use pirated information anymore. Why would you risk to you know, catch viruses, download the song that is not what you're looking for? The quality of the music is completely up and down. You know, it depends. Some, some are crazy volume, some are low. When you can pay, you know, a, rel- a relatively low fee and get access to a worldwide database of music where you can discover new things, you know, the service is outstanding. The quality is, it's great, you know, for especially listening, you know, on headphones. So mm-hmm. there is an incentive to adopt the original and pay for the legitimate service, right? Access. Um, so when you look at Web3, I think you can even go a step further because, again, you should incentivize um the you can you can incentivize the collection of the original through utility you know and and provenance is another one so for example kat simard which is a photographer within the space she's behind the project kat is behind the project called um uh, free away and i found it was really really interesting and really demonstrate the benefit of this techno of 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 how or, or the potential strategy in web3 so what kat did you know um there was this picture she took in Hawaii and it went viral. Everyone was using it without any authorization. That includes also large tech. Now you have enforcement agencies, which are agencies that try to help you enforcing your rights at scale. They're not very effective. I mean, they can be effective in some cases. In this particular case, they weren't very effective, not because mm-hmm. of the fault of anyone. It's just really difficult to put the genie back in the bottle once it's out. Mm. So what Kat did <laughs> is pin the, the problem upside down. So... Create an NFT with uh, the image, which is deemed by all, for all intents and purposes, as the original because you know it's the one created by the by the photographer, by the author. Mm. And then the moment it sells, create a, you know there is a license to go on CC zero, meaning there is a waiver on all IP rights to incentivize everyone to use that as background on Twitter. You know why? Because virality creates value in the original. And the picture mm. sold to G Money for. I believe it's $300,000. So something that was a catastrophe from an enforcement point of view became a great opportunity, you know, to create a viral moment. And I think I think that's just showcases, you know, some of these incentives. And this is an incentive based more maybe on virality, 
um, awareness and uh, of course provenance, which now you can you can prove, you know, with with NFTs. Because before a digital artist, even if you commissioned the work to a digital artist, you had no idea to to immediately prove that, right? So I could just copy and paste it, and I would have the exact same work as you. So, um, oops, you disappeared. I'm still here. You're still there. Okay. Yeah. Uh, can you see me? Yes. Yeah. So. Um, and I think that's very interesting because it showcases one of the use cases. Another use case could be that of uh, creating utility around the token. So if you look at the Artifact, for example, they created the punk project. So if you held the punk, and that's what's great, punks are not a Artifact project, but they were able to build utility on top of a token that belongs to a different provider and create something unique. So if you don't have a punk, yeah, you, sure, I have a punk. You can save right-click save my image, but you won't get access to this utility that you're building mm -hmm. on top of it, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, and there is an incentive of a project to build utility because at the end of the day, you know, if a project is successful, most of the revenue comes from secondary market trade, not from the initial sale. And, and, and you know, you stimulate secondary market sale but by creating something of value on an ongoing basis, you know? So I think that's why uh, within Web3, it's important to focus, uh, we, can really, we can really focus on building an economy of incentives rather than an economy of deterrence. I agree. I think, um, you know, one of the reasons I'm so excited about this, this technology is that it's a, um, because it suddenly opens up a way to transfer value over the internet from peer to peer instead yeah. of relying on a third party, you can in a very granular way, um, you know, link incentives to actions yeah. um you know uh, and yeah i think um that's really powerful and um i think you know we're going to be able to use that to build a new internet uh, that's um i guess more open and and we actually will people will be able to create and value and capture part yeah. of that for themselves also because look before because at the end of the day if you look at the blockchain if you want to really simplify it it's just it's a database on which information can't be replicated right uh, so <clears throat> Or at least this is the use case right now, and I think that's important because digital uniqueness was is necessary. And I know that there are uh, arguments against it because mm -hmm. people say, "Well, but why should you induce scarcity where scarcity is a problem?" Because as human beings, we only value things that are scarce. That's mm -hmm. it. You give no mm -hmm. value whatsoever to you know um, items that are not scarce in value. Mm -hmm. it, it's just inherent to our nature, and mm -hmm. I, I don't say you know. That shouldn't limit access because, again, you know, through CC0 especially, you can provide access to people that are interested. But at the same time, I don't think that you should just have infinite digital information because that undermines the sustainability of a digital economy. I think that what we are seeing now in the Web3 space really represent the uh, Bronze Age of digital information. So we moved from this. It's almost like parallel run parallels to, you know, human evolution in the real world, because we started from the Stone Age, right, where there is no concept of property almost, you know, in the digital realm. Mm -hmm. And then we're moving to now having some way of validating, you know, ownership, but we are still trying to wrap our head around, you know, what, what are the use cases that work, what's not. I look forward to, you know, the age of, of uh, uh, steel, whatever, you, you know what I mean, like to progressing in this. Mm -hmm. This is only the mm -hmm. beginning. It's almost like as a species, we've now evolved and now we are experiencing seeing some of the same uh, cycle within this new digital uh, dimension, you know? And I think that's very fascinating. I agree. And I think that's also a perfect note to um, to conclude our, our discussion today. I feel like there's a lot of stuff we could have talked about further. Maybe we should do a follow-up. I'd love um, to. Yeah, yeah. We, we should definitely do that. Uh, this was very interesting, Omri. And, um, and I think it's clear that you're passionate about this, um, but you're passionate and i think we've, we we try to get people like you on the podcast that are passionate interested open-minded but also critical right um yeah there's, there's i just don't want people, people out there. yeah i just don't want people to in because most often the client that i work are really visionaries and i really respect them and that's why i love working in this space i just don't want people to incur in problems because it's really hard mm. to go back in time that's why at the beginning of the conversation maybe i adopted a, a tone that is a little bit more you know severe or but I'm not trying to deter anyone. Like, just, you know, I, I don't want anyone experiencing problems down the line when really what they're trying to do is so creative, it's so amazing, and and it resonates so much with me. So that's why, yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, by the way. <clears throat> no worries, no worries. It's, uh, it's a great point, and I agree. I think um, it's important, you know, as cool as this new technology is and, and all the possibilities that it brings, it, it's important to keep in mind that... Um, 
Be careful when you use that, right? Yeah. We're, we're, I mean, we see right now that it's this technology is used by so many to scam um, so many people. Um, and this this might be me ranting, but on Twitter, it's been terrible where I get tagged in so many posts of verified yeah. people, verified accounts. It's absolutely yeah. crazy. Um, That's more on so, the platform end. I think that there should yeah, be a solution from the platforms because I don't think it's a fault of the community, you know, or, or the space. And I think there is a lot of good going on in the space with, you know, a project that are used like for charitable purposes, like Relief, for example. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, a friend of mine, Satvik, is uh, one of the people behind it. And I think their work is amazing. And, you know, there mm -hmm. are other creative use cases. I think the space is incredible. I live there during my work life and as a hobby, you know, after mm -hmm. work. I, I'm just obsessed with it. I think it's a subculture. It's fascinating. It's probably the most important cultural moment of our time. I really do believe that. And, mm -hmm. yeah. I agree. I agree. Yeah. So this whole technology has a lot of potential, but also, um, you know, with that potential comes great risk with power comes great, um, responsibility. So, um, I think that's important to keep in mind. Cool. With that, I think, uh, Omri, thank you so much for your insights here. Uh, this was super useful. I, I learned quite a lot. Um, I think, um, you know, I'm still very optimistic, but in more serious way, I guess uh, <laughs> I would describe it. Uh, but that's good. That's good. You know, we're, we're learning here together. So that was yeah. fantastic. Um, so yeah, Omri, um, thank you for, for joining me on this. Um, let's do this again sometime. Absolutely. Uh, maybe IRL as well. That'd be fun. And then, uh, yeah, listener, thank you for listening. I hope uh, you enjoyed this. You learned as much as I did. Um, if you liked what you heard, feel free to give us a like or uh, five stars on Spotify. You can do that now. And so with that, the Metacost by Navic is out and we look forward to speaking to you in the next episode. Cheers.